It's good to be in church. And, uh, you know, when we gather together, the reality is that God's with us. And um, we say this a lot. But sometimes we can forget that it's not just another gathering, but really we're, when we gather together, we're choosing to gather in God's presence. And, you know, um, I was thinking uh, the other day, just a real simple, um, it used to be part of a song, you know, the, the Bible verses that get put into songs are awesome because they're easy to remember their name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, and it's just this one that in, in God's presence is fullness of joy. Um, and, and it says other, in presence is life evermore, and it's presence fullest joy, life evermore. And, uh, you know, sometimes we can um, miss the point that actually the thing we're after is, is found in God's presence. Uh, you know, uh, Chrissy was teaching the, um, the three, four, and five-year-olds this morning in Christ, and they were learning about Samuel. How many people know the story of uh, Samuel? Yeah. yeah, it's good. Yeah, if, you know, if you're allowed to talk, obviously, in church, but... Uh, the story of Samuel, and I was just thinking about that as well. You know, uh, Samuel, if you think about the story, it's a pretty interesting one. His, his mum wasn't able to have children for ages, and it, was a, a, it upset her, obviously, because it was an important, really important thing in their culture particularly, but also, you know, obviously for, for parents or for, for adults, you know, having children is an awesome thing. And um, she was really upset, and she prays, and she makes this decision to God, and just says, God, if you give me a child this year, next year I'll bring the child back, and he can be raised in the house of God. Pretty, it's a pretty amazing story. But I just love that there's this little bit in it, and, and I'm sharing this for someone. Uh, there's a little bit in the story. It just says that, that late at night, uh, when everyone else, was, everyone else was going to sleep, and Samuel was like the servant boy in the temple. And if you think about it, he was sort of raised as a bit of an orphan it's like being, it's, you know, it would have been all right, like he was looked after and the people in the temple were, were good people and he saw his mum once a year. But it would have still been pretty lonely and pretty difficult for a little kid growing up like that. But it just says late at night, which is probably when you're most afflicted by loneliness. Everyone else is asleep. We're probably, that's, that's the time. And I guess we all know those feelings of, man, I am alone. I feel like I'm distant from everything good. And it just says that he lay down and slept close to the ark of God. And I just thought there's something about that. There's this little boy knows that if, if we, as long as we can get close to God, uh, then we're going to find the answers that we're looking for. We're going to find the things that we need. Amen. And I just know if you're feeling lonely, I just, I just want to challenge you. What could you do to position yourself between now and bedtime? To just as you go to bed, just say, oh, I'm going to go to sleep close to the presence of God. Maybe it's as simple as that. As you, as you close your eyes, you say, I know that I'm near you, Jesus. You know, he's promised that he never leaves us and he never forsakes us. That's the truth of his word. Whatever we're feeling, we've got to be able to say, no, the truth of God's word is he never leaves us or forsakes us however we're feeling. Amen? Amen. Well, if you were here this morning, I preached a really good sermon. If you weren't here this morning, it was still good, uh, and you'll be able to listen to it later on on the internet, but it's always better live. Uh, but I preached from Acts chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 40 to, uh, sorry, 42 to 47. And it's a cool little passage from the Bible. I just want to read it, um, and then I'm going to go in a different, slightly different direction uh, tonight. But I want to start from the same starting point, right? And... Um, and so let me just read it, and then it's, it's about the church. So this is when the, the church first emerges, when the church first appears on the earth. Uh, this is after Jesus has died, he's been resurrected to life, and then he's ascended to heaven, and he's told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And they knew that when the Holy Spirit came upon them, that they would receive from the Holy Spirit the power to make Jesus real in the world. That's what the power of the Holy Spirit does. It makes Jesus real and visible, right? Right, so that's what they knew. Then anyway, in Acts chapter 2 is the story of the Holy Spirit arriving in a prayer meeting. So there's 120 followers of Jesus in, the prayer, in, a, in a prayer meeting on the second story or first floor of a building. And they've been there for days and days, like 40 days more or longer. Seven weeks after Jesus ascends to heaven, they're there praying, right? That's why there's only 120 left, right? Because everyone else has found other things to do after day two or three or four, right? 120 people are praying. The Holy Spirit comes and there's fire and there's wind and they begin speaking in these other languages and they pour out onto the street and then Peter stands up and preaches. Uh, and he says, you know, these people aren't drunk, although they looked drunk, they were sort of crazy, and there's madness going on. This big crowd gathers. 
and he preaches and begins to tell the story of the gospel that, that it's been promised from long ago that when the Holy Spirit would come upon us, that we'd be able to speak out the promises and the plans of God, that we'd be able to imagine them and see what God's doing. It, he says it like this, your old, old men will dream dreams and your, your young men will see visions, something like that, maybe the other way around. And the Holy Spirit's moving and Peter's beginning preaching and saying, no, it's always been the promise of God that the reality of his presence would be real among people. You know, God, it's never God's plan to be distant, far away, weird, but it's always been his plan to be close. And, and one of the problems with church sometimes is that it's easier, it's easier to control people with a far away God. It's easier for me to talk to you about your behavior and try and manipulate your behavior by saying this big bad God in the sky is going to punish you if you don't, right? Big bad God in the sky with a big stick, right? And, and, and sometimes you can grow up with that picture. But God's plan has always been to be near. You know, it says right at the fulfillment of all time in Revelation 21, it says, behold, right? So there's a big announcement in heaven. So right across the cosmos, there's big announcement, you know? Behold, check it out, look at, look, the tabernacle or the dwelling place, the holy dwelling place of God is with people. And God's plan's always been to dwell in us, right? And that's what the Holy Spirit's about, that He dwells in us. And for us, it's weird because we know that inside us dwells no good thing. That's what Jeremiah said, inside me dwells no good thing. My heart is desperately wicked. It's beyond repair, right? So we know that that's what we like. But it doesn't change the fact that God wants to invite, he wants to knock on the door and be invited into our life. And that's what we see happening in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit, for the very first time, descends upon a group of people. Previously in the Old Testament, you've got people like King David and Samson. Uh, You've got Moses and you've got Noah that the Holy Spirit would come upon. But now for the first time, he comes upon a group of people and then dwells inside them makes his home inside them, right? And it has a, pro- a dramatic effect and a profound impact on the people. And just have a listen to this. I'm reading it in an older translation of the Bible because it's got some cool funny words uh, that I think you'll like, right? Yeah. That's right. It says this, and it says that after the sermon, uh, those who gladly received the word were baptized. So straight after the sermon, the whole lot of people get baptized. And then it says that day, 3,000 people were added to the church, right? How many people know that that's a big service, right? There's about 100 people here in the building tonight. There's about 120 people in this prayer meeting, and something happened in this prayer meeting that blew out into the city streets immediately, right? If you think about it, it's just a story in the Bible, but you think about that practically. What would it look like if we all... The Holy Spirit comes and we all find ourselves out on the side of the street. And the, the, the power of God is moving among us. And Aru steps up and says, these people aren't drunk. Well, some of them may be. But anyway, these people shouldn't be drunk, right? And then he begins to preach. And, and what would it look like if, if 3,000 people got baptized tonight? Like, how many people know that that's a pretty dramatic sort of an event? And, you know, that's the classic thing in the Bible. You read stuff and it's like, it's four verses long. 3,000 people were added. There's other bits in the Bible. The corresponding passage in the Old Testament is a moment where there's this massive rebellion in, in, under Moses' leadership. This massive rebellion. And, and, and it just says that on, on one day God opened up the earth and 3,000 people fell in. And then he closed it up. Also like a pretty dramatic event. Isn't it? It's like it would make, it would make the news, right? And also an Invercargill, well, couldn't have an Invercargill, maybe somewhere with more people. But, uh, but, but the earth opens up, 3,000 people are, are, are destroyed because of rebellion. And now when the Holy Spirit comes, right, and there's this move of God, 3,000 people are added. God redeems these 3,000 souls into the kingdom out of the earth. And the, the picture we've got to understand is when the Holy Spirit comes upon a group of people, things change dramatically. Things get turned upside down. Things happen that couldn't have otherwise happened. The 120 followers of Jesus were not influential. They were not powerful. Most of them were not even from Jerusalem. They're from way out in the back blocks. They're in Jerusalem because that's where Jesus told them to wait. And the Holy Spirit comes and there's something powerful takes place. Now, we don't, we don't necessarily expect the Holy Spirit to appear the same way every time. If you're an infinite God, why would you turn up the same way every time? 
Do you know what I mean? Like, if you're an infinite God, you'd wear a different outfit every day of the week, wouldn't you? Yeah? If you had infinite finance, you would too. If you had infinite sneakers, they'd just get the one wear, right? And you know, David Beckham, one, one wear in the sneakers. That's the way to live, isn't it? But sometimes we think we want God to turn up the same way, but we don't want God to turn up the same way. We want the same God to turn up. We want this, we want, and we know that when God turns up, things change. How do they change? They change like they get turned around different. They get turned upside down. Things get swung around. But anyway, let's just read this little passage, and this is what happens in amongst these people. Just imagine Jerusalem's a city of less than a million people. It's probably less than 500,000 people at this point, right? And look at what's happening, okay? The fear of God came upon, oh, sorry, they were baptized in 3,000 added, and this is, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. So there's four things they did. They, they continued in the teachings of the apostles, they, they, um, the, and they continued in fellowship, and they continued in breaking bread, and they continued in prayers. Then fear, it says, comes upon every soul. The fear of God, the honor of God, the awe of God comes upon every soul. And it says many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common they sold their possessions and their goods and they divided among all of them as anyone had need now that's all old language but what it means is people sold stuff and then just used the money to support each other so there's a this is what I'm talking about there's a massive change there's a massive change in these people's lives, in this community of people. It's not a small community. There's at least 3,000 on day one. Uh, a few weeks, a few chapters later, we read another 5,000 people get added in a single day. Right? So this is a big momentum. It's a big movement of people, right? But there's something dramatic happens. If you leave church and sell your stuff just to give and support others, that's a, how many people know that that's a dramatic change? If people got to sell stuff just to support others, that's a dramatic change. That's not for a good cause. It's just for that cause. That's not for, there's not a plan. There's not a, there's not a system. There's not, there's not like a thermometer thing, you know, with the, the you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000. No, there's just a dramatic shift in how everybody thinks about money. Suddenly, money is for something different than what they thought it was for before. That's a dramatic change, right? Cool. And verse 46, it says, now continuing daily, check out, this is their church calendar. Listen to this. Continuing daily in one accord in the temple. So they met how often in the temple? Daily in the temple. And they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So they met in the temple every day, but they also met in small groups. So like they're, they're slightly different to what we do, right? So we meet at church on Sunday, which is awesome. And then we meet on a Wednesday or a Tuesday in a smaller group or in house to house. We call them, we call them e-groups because they're totally different to everything else you've heard about small groups. It's a totally different thing. It's cool, right? And so we meet from house to house or from cafe to cafe, right? Uh, we do that once a week. They were doing this sort of thing daily. So they're meeting in the temple daily, and they're meeting from house to house all over the place. And they're, they're continuing to, and they eat their food with the gladness and a simplicity of heart, praising God, and they have favor with all of the people, right? So all of the city gets to hear about this. And all of the city begins to think, man, this is an awesome group of people. The whole city is aware of what God is doing because of what's happening in people's hearts, all right? And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So every day, every single day, they've got influence and impact in the community around them. And it all comes back to this moment of the Holy Spirit's impact in their world. Now, see, one of the challenges with leading a church is that you can try really hard to make people, to convince people of stuff. And we do it every Sunday. We'll tell you about joining the e-group. Every Sunday, we'll tell you about signing up onto an e-team and serving on a Sunday. Or, or we'll tell you about stuff we're doing like on Wednesday night with Neil Smith. And sometimes we try hard to convince you, but we shouldn't actually have to. 
Right, actually, we shouldn't have to. My prayer is that as a church, more and more and more, we'd start to look like this group of people. Now, now we don't need the Holy Spirit to come upon us in the same way. We don't need to fall out in the street speaking different language. Whatever happens, that will be fun, right? It doesn't need to. It doesn't need to look exactly the same. But I want it to. It needs to have the same sort of sound to it. It needs to have the same sort of look to it. Where we gather together, where we've got faith and passion, we're excited to praise God together. We're excited to share food together. We're excited and we're seeing miracles happen. We're seeing provision of God being poured out upon the place and it would be super exciting, wouldn't it? You know, well, you could just sit there and think, oh, well, whatever, Winston. The reality is, we, you know, as a church, we don't exist in Wellington to keep each other entertained. And we don't exist in Wellington just to teach about Bible stuff. There's not, church isn't a Bible class where you just come to learn about Bible stuff. We do want to teach the Bible, right? That's what we, we do want to teach the Bible. But, but church is a mission. Ch- church, church is an army. Church is this mobilized force. When you see the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, in, a, in the first instance, the first thing God does is throw them out of the building. It doesn't even say how. It just says they're in the upper room, the Holy Spirit comes down, and then they're in the street. Isn't it funny that the very first thing that the Holy Spirit does to the church is push the people out of the building? Isn't it funny that the very first thing before, before the Holy Spirit reveals visions and revelations and the, there's tongues and you know, but just as God moves, one of the byproducts of God being alive and the Holy Spirit being at work is that the focus shifts from inside to outside and there's a pouring out into the street. Don't you reckon that's awesome? And so I really believe that as a church, this is what we need to be praying for. If you're pray, ever praying for a Christmas church, let's be praying for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Let's be moving towards God. One of my favorite quotes is, um, you know, the churches that I've grown up in, which is these sort of churches, Agrippa's Church and others, is that, that people will always pray for, how many people have heard of uh, people praying for revival? A show of hands, you've heard of people. Let's pray for revival. Show of hands, three people have heard of that. Yeah, a show of hands if you've heard of people, let's pray for the Holy Spirit to move on our city. Anybody heard people praying those sorts of prayers? Yeah, let's pray for a move of God. Who's heard of a, a move of God? Give a show of hands. You've heard of that prayer of a move of God. You know, um, one of the cool things I think, one of the cool quotes I've ever heard is, the, is simply this. A move of God happens when a bunch of people move towards God. Because the, the Bible tells us very clearly in, in the book of James that when we draw near to God... He draws near to us. God's not up in heaven waiting for the right amount of prayers to be prayed, you know. 9,999. One million prayers got prayed for revival. Now I can do something in Wellington. No, God's up in, uh, God is in heaven waiting to move in our city, waiting to move into our life, waiting to move in your circumstance, waiting to move in your situation. And all he's waiting for is for you to move to him. As a church, we're not in Wellington waiting for God to move. We're in Wellington moving towards God. We, you know, we're not just in Wellington. We are Wellington. We are Wellington moving towards God. We are Wellington opening up our hearts to Jesus. We are Wellington responding to the Holy Spirit. We are Wellington giving to the poor. We are Wellington reaching out into other neighborhoods. We are Wellington. We are the people of God in Wellington moving towards Him and seeing God move. I reckon this whole community of faith, this whole church deal, revolves around one thing. Now, I'm not talking about the gospel. The gospel revolves all around Jesus' faithfulness, which is why we're all in church and, and the Holy God hasn't struck anybody with fire. Have you noticed that tonight? You know, no, no one's been struck. As far as I know, no one's been struck dead yet. There are some people looking a bit sleepy, but as far as I know, they haven't been struck dead, right? You know, in the Old Testament, people just didn't turn up at church. Because on a regular occasion throughout the Old Testament, people are dropping dead in church because they're turning up at church dressed wrong, burning the wrong candles, bringing the wrong animal, right? People dropping dead, right? But we don't find that happening as much in the church today, right? Why? Because the, the gospel doesn't revolve around us. It doesn't revolve around our ability to please God. It revolves around Jesus Christ. And the fact that Jesus, who's God himself, comes in a human form, 
and dies in my place means that I can come boldly, the Bible tells me, I can come boldly into the presence of God uh, because of the blood of Christ, because of his full sacrifice. Which means that if I believe in Jesus' faithfulness, his faithfulness saves me, not my righteousness, not my goodness, not my ability to measure up. The Bible says that the just will live by faith, and that means that the just live on account of Jesus' faithfulness. Because of Jesus' faithfulness, we can come into God's presence. Because of Jesus' faithfulness, when we honor God, when we choose to follow Him, our our eternal destiny is secure in heaven. Because of Jesus' faithfulness, God calls us out of darkness and into His glorious light. We find a new identity in Him. We find a new, new position in God's love, new position in God's family because of Jesus' faithfulness, right? So the gospel, the gospel, the fulcrum of the gospel is Jesus Christ. It all swings around Him. Yeah, we have to respond and, and we have to open our heart. We need to, we need to believe, right? But, but our believing isn't the active ingredient. And the active ingredient is Jesus and his faithfulness. How many people are glad about that? Because not many of you look very glad, right? I'm excited about the fact that it doesn't come down to me. It's down to him. I know I have to agree with him, but it's not down to me. It's down to him. That's how the gospel works. But it's not how the world gets changed. Because the gospel changes individuals. And individuals decide how societies work. The world's not changed by the quiet movement of the Holy Spirit from person to person. Individual hearts are changed like that. But the the world is changed when communities of people come together and believe. When a group of people say, on Sunday at 6 p.m., let's move towards God. Let's move towards God. Don't you like it? Then we draw near to God. He draws near to us. Let's move towards God. Do you know what I like about that? It's, it's like the, the passage I read, I read this morning from Psalms 84. That we're blessed. Blessed are those who set their hearts. Everyone think about this word. Set their hearts on pilgrimage. The blessing of God comes to us when we, when we set our heart on pilgrimage. Which is different to what you think. You think it's about setting your heart and your mind and your focus on a destination. You know, because we've been taught to set goals. A pilgrimage is not a goal. A pilgrimage is a journey. The thing about a pilgrimage is that we don't do pilgrimages in our, in our sort of, our, um, we could, it'd be good fun. I, I guess Shout Conference is a bit of a pilgrimage. Not just the journey to Auckland, but across the days. But it, it's a good pilgrimage because at the end of it, if someone said, what, what did God say to you at Shout? You actually won't be able to answer. Because it wasn't about, there was no destination in it. There was just a sense of movement. Do you know, one of the reasons it's good to be in church every single Sunday is the same reason as when you're walking, you just have to keep taking more and more steps. Do you know what I mean? Like you could walk like this if you wanted. Then wait three steps. Then wait three steps. And a lot of people live their Christianity like that. The first Sunday of the month, they'll make a big leap. Or they make a whole lot of mistakes and feel distant from God. And then they'll jump to Him. Do you know what I mean? But I like this idea of journey. You know, we set our hearts on pilgrimage and we go from strength to strength. So you, where, are you, where you are right now is a position of strength. Some of you are like, I don't feel very strong. And I know how you feel. You're sitting there thinking, well, I don't feel strong. I feel weak. I can't even, you know, you're in church, which is a good decision. But beyond that, you make no good decisions. It's not true, but that's how you feel. Inside you feel like, man, I'm just useless. Right? But, you know, where you are right now is a position of strength. And God moves you from the strength you have now to where? Strength. And to strength. Another passage says he moves us from glory to glory by the Spirit of God. Why is, why is the position where you're at now strong? Why would you describe it as strong? Why would I describe it as strong? Why does the Bible say that he moves you from glory to glory? 
Why? Because, you know, how many people know, we won't do a survey, don't put your hand up. But a bunch of you do not feel glorious now. We don't, we don't always feel particularly glorious, you know. How, how are you doing? I'm glorious. You know, we don't, you know, it sort of makes you think of like a toothpaste ad, you know. Someone's got like glorious teeth, you know, shiny. Often we don't feel glorious, often we feel like tarnished or we feel broken. But the glory of the glory that you carry isn't like the glory of kings or the glory of celebrities. It's the glory of God. Have you ever thought about what the glory of God is? Maybe you haven't. It's my job to do a lot of thinking. You guys are busy, eh? <laughs> Looking around like, have you thought, oh, you haven't had, you haven't, some of you haven't been live long enough to think about this yet. But I thought about the glory of God. You know, he moves us from glory to glory. What is it that gives God glory? When I say glory, it means adds weight to. What makes God look good? What is it, what is it that, makes, that lifts God up, that really makes God look good? Sometimes we think we bring glory to God when we do the right thing. But really what we do is we bring glory to ourselves. And maybe we think we'll bring glory to God if we tell everyone in Wellington about Jesus. But sometimes that's a motivation really to bring glory to ourselves. What brings glory to God is when you are, when, when you are a testimony of His goodness. When your life is a testimony of His grace. So in fact... Just living out a perfect life and never making a mistake doesn't really bring glory to God. It's just what it is. But living out the ordinary life that every single human being has to live that's full of confusion and it's full of difficulty, it's full of sin, it's full of brokenness, it's full of pain, but living that out with a growing understanding of God's uh, an awareness of God, that's what brings glory to Him. What brings glory to Him is that you're still standing. What brings glory to Him is that you still believe. What brings glory to Him is that you've got a growing understanding of His grace. What brings glory to is that you keep repenting, that you keep returning, that you keep moving, that you move from glory. What's glorious about where I am right now? What's glorious is that you're still forgiven by God. You're still resting in His grace. You're still borne up by His hand. His face is still shining upon you despite your brokenness. What does Jesus say this cool thing about? We have, Paul says it, we have this treasure. We have treasure which is this glory of God, this power of God. We have this treasure in jars of clay, in earth vessels. Now, in the ancient world, if something was particularly precious, you didn't keep it in an earthen vessel because they didn't have the same, the, quite the same level of technique that we have in terms of firing ceramics. If something's real precious, it would be served in a, a in a in a like a, a metal, like a golden container. Like if you're holding a treasure, you'd hold it in a golden container. If you think about the the Ark of the Covenant, it wasn't an earthen box; it w- it was a wooden box covered in gold. That's what you put treasure in. But God doesn't put treasure in wooden boxes covered with gold anymore. He used to put his presence in a wooden box covered with gold. Now he puts the treasure of his presence in an earthen vessel. Just a dirt, just a dirt pot baked by the sun. Somewhat cracked, somewhat broken. He puts his treasure in that vessel. Why? To show something. God wants to put his treasure in you to show the world that his power isn't from you. Isn't it funny? God wants to prove to the world that you're not as strong as you look so that if the world can see how strong he is. He wants to prove to the world that you're not as holy as you think because he wants the world to see that his grace is made perfect in weakness. What we do in religion is we make ourselves look good and we make God, by the comparison, look bad. This is how we do it. We pretend to be a certain way and we judge everybody else. And everyone else says, well, I'm not ever going anywhere near God because look at those jerks. They don't have any problems. They look, they all, they all, they all, they've got no issues. 
They've got no, they've got no failings. They just stand up high away from sin and point the finger at, at, at gays and weirdos and robbers and bad people. I'm trying to think of all the worst bad people from a church perspective. Drunks and people with B.O. <laughs> Do you know, there, there was a time really where you couldn't turn up at church if you weren't dressed right. There, there, there was a time where you, you, couldn't up, you couldn't turn up at church and, and, and you, at church you could never admit a mistake. The church I grew up in, you'd never admit a mistake. Because there was a list of rules, and if you broke any of the rules, there was a youth group manual, and if you broke any of the rules, you'd get kicked out for a certain amount of time. Because they were trying to keep the church holy, which is pretty hard to do with all the sinners in the room. (laughs) They're trying to keep the church holy. Right, so we'll kick, well, you you made this mistake, so we'll kick you out. So we find out that, you know, we find out that Aru wiped his nose on his sleeve. That's disgraceful. You're out of the youth group for a week, right? Who's next going to admit the same problem? But the reality is Jesus wants to to show the world how great he is. So he wants to show the world how useless you are. He wants to put in you his treasure in a broken vessel so that it would leak out. He doesn't want his treasure in 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 the golden box. Because if it's in the golden box, it's all sealed up. It can't escape from the golden vessel. But the earthen vessel, it's just going to leak out. Do you know, he loves the fact that you've got that problem because his grace can leak out of that problem. Other people can see, man, Putty's just an ordinary guy, but he's still in church. He's just an ordinary guy, but he's found answers to his issues. He's just an ordinary guy, but he still finds hope. There's no glory in, well, Putty's a legend. He never has any problems. No wonder he enjoys church. That doesn't make God look good. Here's the the deal. The fulcrum of the gospel is Jesus Christ, and it all swings around him, around his faithfulness, around his goodness. But this passage I read from Acts chapter 2 about a a, a community of faithful people, 120 people that became 3,120 people, that becomes 8,000 and something. Inside one generation, there's a satellite church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus was something like 100,000 people. These guys, the apostles, when they went, to, they went to a certain city, start this massive riot. And this was the accusation that was brought against them. These are the people who have turned the world upside down. The fulcrum of that sort of societal change doesn't swing around the gospel because the gospel is real in every generation, in every circumstance, in every situation. But what's not true of every generation is what we see in this passage. It says in verse 42, and they continued steadfastly. And I want to, I want to, let, let's be real, Equipus Church Wellington, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is what it's all about. But the thing that's going to change Wellington is not just the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been real for 2,000 years. But when Wellington, when Wellington hears about it, it's not because Jesus died, it's because people start talking about it. But it's not because people start talking about it, because how many people know there's often people preaching on the street talking about Jesus? That's not what changes a city. What changes a city is 100% commitment. What changes a society is is a 100% focus. What changes the world is when people say, no, I'm going to move towards God in every day of my life. I'm going to move towards Him. I'm going to experience His presence. I'm going to carry the treasure in a jar of clay. I'm going to expect God to do something great. I'm going to continue steadfastly. The old translations say that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. They continued daily in the temple. But it starts around this simple idea. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. I don't know if you've ever heard the saying, um, uh, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Have you heard, ever, how many people have heard the saying? Old people have. Dr. Livingston, I presume. 
It's a cool story. Livingston went to the jungles in Africa and they, it took them years to find him again. Someone hacked through the bush and they found Livingston, this guy from, he was a, a missionary from England. And they found him and he'd built a hospital and he'd built a school and a whole society had been transformed because one person was committed. I love the stories of the missionaries who first left the United Kingdom. Because of the British Empire's ruthless expansion throughout the world, which was driven by greed and envy, because of their expansion throughout, the gospel was able to spread with it. So traders would come in one decade, a decade later, missionaries would come with the grace and the peace of the gospel. Sometimes the missionaries were also traders and things went badly. But nearly always the missionaries were people with passion and purpose and commitment. And they would leave England with one suitcase. They'd build themselves or they'd buy themselves a coffin. And they would pack all of their belongings into the coffin. So rather than taking a suitcase, they would take the coffin with them. Pack all the belongings that they were taking with them. And they would sail across the ocean to Africa. Because... 85% of the missionaries who went, significantly more than 70% anyway, of the missionaries who went to Africa would be in the coffin themselves within 12 months of their departure. One of the the famous, one one of my favorite stories of missionaries coming to New Zealand is a guy by the name of Octavius Hadfield, and he's he's buried just near Martin, just, just right on the side of State Highway 1 as you drive north. And he was a pretty interesting guy. His, his name's Octavius because he was the eighth child in a largest family in the United Kingdom. And he had extreme asthma. This is in about 1850. He had extreme asthma. They didn't have the medication that we have today. And he applied to, with, to the Church Missionary Society to travel to New Zealand as a missionary. Uh, and, and he applied and they turned him down because of, of, of on medical grounds. Because to be a missionary in New Zealand was going to require him to walk great distances. It was going to require him to travel on horseback, to travel on ships, to travel by on open boats. And they said, no, you, you won't last. You won't last a year. And they said, you can't go. You won't last a year. So he applied again the next time they took application. And they said, you can't go. You won't last a year. On the third or the fourth time of his application, he finally got an interview. They said, we don't want to send you. You won't last a year. And he said, there's no way I'll last a year. But it will be the most glorious months of my existence if I can witness Jesus at the ends of the earth. He arrived in New Zealand to the Bay of Islands, which is where everyone arrived at the time. took six weeks on foot to get to his parish. They assigned him a parish. His parish was from the Whanganui River Mouth, the whole of the West Coast, from the Whanganui River Mouth to Wellington, all of Wellington, and into the mountains, and, the, and Nelson in Marlborough. He could only really travel by foot in an open boat. Every two weeks, he would have to row to Marlborough and to Nelson. 18 hours of rowing. On a weekly basis, he would have to walk over the Akataras, so from Waikanae to Upper Hutt and then down uh, through the valley to Wellington to report. Things are going well. Awesome. Off you go. All with debilitating asthma. He only managed to live to 85 years old, still active on the mission field at the time. At one point, he sat down with Tarapraha. He had the most direct influence with Tarapraha. He sat down in Tarapraha's meeting hall and he picked up some tapu kumra and began to eat it. And the, the tohunga who were there, who had placed the tapu on the food, began to curse him. And they, so they began to curse him by all of the gods. And he just looks at them. He's one relatively bewildered sort of Englishman. He looks at them and they both drop dead. At that point, he was then given free reign throughout the region. Uh, On another occasion, he was traveling back from Wellington to the coast where he'd been arguing with government and Wellington company officials to try and protect the area that was being given back under the Tenths Agreement. He was trying to protect that politically because he knew it was a dodgy deal, right? The Māori people didn't understand his involvement. He was trying to protect their interests. They thought that he was working against them. It was a bit of a misunderstanding. Two Tōhunga came out of a village, again, began to curse him. 
He turned and looked at them and they both dropped dead. So when he should have been dropping dead, those who opposed him were dropping dead. He wasn't supposed to last a single year. He lasted 60 years in missions on the, on the other side of the world in a time with the, without the proper medication. Now the reality is, what was it that allowed him to turn the world upside down? There was over a thousand people in his congregation in Waikanae. You can still, at the Ariao Park, there's a little monument. What was it that allowed him to turn whole societies around and change things and, to, and to, to be powerful and to be active? It wasn't the gospel. The gospel was at work with him, in him on the other side of the world. It was his 100% commitment. It was his choosing to devote himself. You know what's going to change uh, Victoria University? The gospel's already in Victoria University. What's going to change Victoria is a 100% commitment to devote ourselves. What's going to transform families in our city is, is, is not good thoughts and happy feelings, but it's going to be a 100% commitment. What's going to transform Porirua, Tawa, the eastern suburbs, South Wellington? What's going to transform those communities, change people's lives? 100% commitment, a decision to devote ourselves. The word devoted is from the Latin the original meaning was to make a formal vow, to consecrate. Romans chapter 12 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. When you consider what he has done, surely that's what we should be doing, is honoring God in the same way, devoting ourselves, committing ourselves. What does it mean to, to be devoted? What does it mean to be committed? What, what's, our, what's the modern equivalent of packing your stuff in a coffin? Oh, but, you know, I'm just at university to get a degree, to get a degree because I want to get a good job. Well, I don't think that you are at university to get a degree. I think it's a good thing to get a degree, especially if you're enrolled. If you're paying the fees, you should get a degree. But there's a whole there's there's a whole another dimension at work. Well, I'm just doing my best to be a, a good mom or a good dad. That's awesome. But you're not just here to be a good mom or a good dad. We're we're here to change the world. We're here to transform society. And do we know what we're doing? No. Do we have treasure? Yes. Do we have something to offer? Yes. Do we have a very good package? No. Is it easy to market church? Not if you're doing it right. Come to church. What is it? We don't know. What are you doing? Stuff. What happens? Miracles. What do you mean? What's miracles happen? Just have a think, maybe close your eyes if you need the space. What's your, what's your formal commitment to Christ? What's your level of devotion? They devoted themselves to be devout is to make a formal vow to consecrate. Because I really don't think it's, it's the job of the pastor to tell everyone this is, this is the level of commitment. Because as soon as I tell you this is what you should do, A, not a single person in the room is going to do it. Because as soon as you get told what to do, what do you do? The opposite. But the main reason I, it's not the pastor's job to tell, to set the level of consecration is that the power of this faith community that we read about in Acts chapter 2, the power came from the fact that they devoted themselves. The power of Romans 12 is not that, that God chooses to make us a living sacrifice. The power of Romans 12 is when we choose to position ourselves as living sacrifices. When we freely choose to say, Jesus, you saved me. You've set me free from pain and from frustration and from emptiness and from loneliness and from brokenness. 
And because of what you've done for me, Jesus, I'm going to set my heart apart. I'm going to set my life apart. I'm going to make myself a living sacrifice for you. Every day of my life is going to be lived like a sacrifice on an altar, laid down before you. Every waking moment, every waking hour, a, a, a living sacrifice, fully devoted to God. And Romans chapter 12 is awesome. He, Paul just says, this is, when we consider God's mercies, this is our reasonable sacrifice. Sometimes we think the people that go all out in church are the crazy ones. But the people who go all out are just making a reasonable sacrifice. In view of God's mercies, this is our reasonable sacrifice. That we'd give everything to follow Him. That we'd give everything in obedience to Him. Just as you have your heads bowed and eyes closed, I want, I want to pray a couple of times. Firstly, I want to give people an opportunity to respond to Jesus. If, if you're here and you've never chosen to make Jesus the Lord of your life, can I, can I urge you today to consider it? If you, if you have considered it already, can I urge you today to take this opportunity to acknowledge Jesus? Take this opportunity to declare Him to be Lord. Open your heart tonight to the possibility of His love for you, the wonder of His goodness to you. The Bible is clear that God loved the world so much that He sent His Son to die so that anyone who believes in Jesus would have everlasting life. Jesus comes to give us a life and gives us life in all of its fullness. And we could all take turns, a bunch of us here, and tell you what that means in my life or what it means in Patsy's life or what it means in Aru's life or what it's meant in Alistair's life, but it sort of means different things, but the real central truth is that Jesus makes us alive now and forever. When we make a decision to acknowledge Him as Lord, that means the boss of all things. Acknowledge our sin and ask Him to forgive us. Our eternal destiny is secure, and Jesus gives us purpose, hope, and life here and now. Maybe you've made this decision before, and I just, but if, if, if you're a Christian already and you've made this decision before, just consider even now as we do this, man, every Sunday when we, when we make this call, man, what an amazing thing Jesus sacrifices for us. That God Himself would die for us, that He would surrender His life for our life, that He would swap His righteousness for our sinfulness, He'd swap His freedom for our bondage. And, Today, if you're here and you've never made a decision to acknowledge Jesus or, or you're so far away from that decision you made one time and, and you're here and you know that today is the right day for you to recommit and rededicate your life to Him. While everyone's got their heads bowed and their eyes closed, if you're wanting to make that decision today, in a moment I'm going to ask you to lift your hand. When you lift your hand, I'll see it. You can put it back down. And then when everyone's had a chance to respond, then we're going to pray together. I'm asking you to lift your hand for two reasons. Number one, so that I know who's praying this prayer with us tonight. And number two, it's so that you can make a, like a personal visual declaration. Yeah, I'm choosing to acknowledge Jesus. I'm choosing to make Him the Lord of my life. Is there anyone here tonight? Why don't you shoot your hand up and say, yeah, that's the decision I'm making. Thank you. Over on my left, that's awesome. Over on my right, that's awesome. How many others are making that decision tonight? Say, yeah, I'm acknowledging Jesus. Thank you. Right at the back. That's awesome. How many others are saying, yeah, I'm going to make Jesus the Lord of my life, the boss of my life. I'm going to ask Him to forgive me of my sins. I'm going to receive the forgiveness of His grace. Is there anyone else? Just shoot your hand up once I've seen it. You can put it back down. And in just a couple of seconds, we're going to pray. Uh, over on my left as well. Thank you so much. If there's anyone else, just shoot your hand up now. Yeah, And just say, yeah, that's me. I'm acknowledging Jesus. I'm receiving His salvation. That's awesome. Let's pray together. If you lifted your hand, just pray this prayer with everything you've got. The Bible says that when we believe in our heart, which is what you've already done, and then you declare with your mouth, which is what we've got to do in this prayer, then, then you are saved. So let, let's pray together, but particularly if you lifted your hand, but so you don't feel embarrassed, we're actually all going to pray together and, and make this declaration over our own lives. Is that all right? Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me.
And thank you for dying in my place. I thank you that you've made the difference that I could never make. Today I receive forgiveness from you. And I ask you to forgive all of my sins. I'm choosing today to follow you. And I make you the boss of my whole life. From today and forever. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. That's an awesome decision. After the service, we'd love to get your name and number or if we don't know you. If you fill in a visitor's card, you can just tick the box that said, I'm making Jesus my Savior today. Just tick that box, and then someone can be in touch with you. Uh, pretty soon, we're going to be launching a real cool, uh, our, our new Christians class is going to be launching. So if you're new to this whole idea of following Jesus, we're going to get Jono to teach you and talk you through some of what it means. And so we'd love to be in touch with you about that. So after the service, just just uh, see one of the hosting team, and they'll be able to, to get your details and make sure you know about uh, those classes when they come up. Is that cool? One of my favorite stories from history is the story of uh, Fidel Castro's takeover of Cuba. And apologies if you heard this story before. But Cuba is like a whole country. It's not a huge country in the, in the, on a world scale, but it's a good-sized country. And uh, Cuba is the country that, and Fidel Castro is probably the, the leader who's brought the world closest to ultimate destruction. Of any leader in the world, uh, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, there's all sorts of different stories about it, but the Americans were very, very close to firing hundreds and hundreds of nuclear weapons. It's a pretty influential sort of a guy. He's got a cafe around the corner. I don't think he runs it. But Fidel Castro was a, was a Marxist revolutionary, and he had a small band of followers, and he... He decided to recruit an army and invade Cuba. And uh, so he got an army together to invade Cuba. It's an island nation, so they invaded to a certain bay. They, all this whole army arrived, and they were going to take over Cuba. There were 82 of them. Now, I don't know how big the army has to be before you say, hey, we're going to invade. But for me... The army needs to be bigger than 82. I would say, if I was to, to build an army and there was, if, if you were, let me, let's put it this way. If you were to build an army and there were 82 people in your army, I would tell you, that's not an army. That's a large group of friends. But Fidel Castro and his large group of friends, dubbed slash revolutionary army, invaded Cuba and the first day did not go well. The first day of the Cuban Revolution went particularly badly for the Cuban Revolutionary Army. And historians disagree on how many people were killed on the first day. But they do know that there was either 21 or 22 people left in the army after day one. Now, if you have an army of 21 or 22, I don't mind. If it's 21 or 22, I'll say that's not an army. That's now a small group of friends. But you know, four years later, Fidel Castro was the president of Cuba. And he ruled Cuba for 40 years. His brother is now ruling the country. And he wreaked all sorts of havoc. He brought all sorts of evil. I want to suggest to you that the Holy Spirit wasn't helping Fidel Castro. In fact, Fidel Castro is working against the plans of God in many ways. You know, we know God's plans are bigger than what humans do. He had an army smaller than the Pororo youth. Why shouldn't Putty be the Prime Minister of New Zealand in four years' time? Well, maybe because it's not God's plan. It'll be entertaining for a week or so before the whole nation would say, could we have somebody else? But sometimes we think, sometimes we think church is just a fun, it's just something to do in our spare time, but, and, 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 or it's something that just blesses us. But it's not, we're, we're here to make a difference. Every single person in Wellington has a role to play in changing Wellington and the world. 
I, I 100% believe it. That's why, that's why I'm excited on a Sunday is because here's, here's 80 people. Even if 60 of you die tomorrow, we can still do this. Right? It'll be a busy week of funerals. But we, and it'll be, you know, I'll be sad for you for a minute or two. But the reality is this. Come on, we're here to make a difference. Come on, your unsafe friends, your unsafe family members, the people in your lecture, the people at your workplace, these are people desperate for the love of Jesus. If they're not desperate for the love of Jesus, then we don't understand how much impact Jesus has had on our life. Could I challenge you? Is there someone in your world God wants you to reach out to this week? And even right now, the Holy Spirit's talking to you about who that person is. Who is it that you need to call? Who do you need to, to say, let's have lunch? Who do you need to just look out for and take the opportunity if it arises? Sometimes you can't have lunch. Sometimes you just have to be ready. Come on, who is it that you need to be in conversation with this week? Could we pray tonight before we go? Could we pray about these people that God's calling us to reach out to? Could we pray? Why don't we stand to our feet? Oh, hold on, sit down, sit down. Stand up, stand up. Ah, sit down, sit down. Thank you, Wakash. I've got, I, before we pray, I want to give people a chance to respond. Just in your heart, just in your heart. Just in your heart. If you're willing to respond to the Holy Spirit, just say in your heart, I'm devoting myself. Just make that decision in your heart. I'm going to devote myself to following Jesus. It's not going to be about other people's pressuring me or ringing me up or making me come to church. It's not going to be about the pastor telling me what to do. Just in your heart, just make the decision if, if you're wanting to. Just make the decision, I am devoting myself. I am choosing to make Jesus Lord in my life. I am choosing to follow Him. Is that all right? Holy Spirit, I just thank you for all of those responding and, and everyone in the room. Lord, I thank you that you're calling us to make a difference in the world. And Lord God, even though there's not, this is not thousands of people, Lord God, this is a, a bunch of people prepared to devote ourselves. We are a bunch of people prepared to make a difference in our world. A bunch of people prepared to follow you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, if God's put someone in your heart to reach out to this week or someone you could begin praying for, could we, could we stand to our feet and begin praying right now? Is that all right? Could we pray together? If God hasn't put you someone in your heart, you, you know, you could just pray in general in the next 30 seconds. You could just pray, God, give me the opportunity this week. God, give me the chance to reach out to someone this week. Uh, is that cool? We're going to pray for 30 seconds. Musicians, why don't you come? We'll finish with a song of praise in just a minute. Come on, lift it. Let's lift our hands. Let's, let's lift up. Let's lift people up before God. Uh, tonight. Okay, three, two, one, let's begin to pray. Do you know, um, just if you could, this is what I'm asking people to do, and I've said it a few times, I just keep saying it, is um, maybe get a, like a notebook and just write the names down of people that you're praying for. And have you ever wondered what to pray for people? Did you ever think, oh, what, do you actually pray for somebody? Do you know what I mean? Uh, one thing you can do is when you read something in the Bible like that's a promise of God, like He calls us out of darkness and into His glorious light. Uh, Lord, you might read something in the Bible that uh, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, these are things that we can just pray over people with real confidence because it's in the Bible. You know, so we can say something like, I'm praying for Daniel that you'd call him out of darkness 
and into your glorious life. So then you can think about what does that mean? So you can say, God, help him to see his potential. Help him to see your love. Help him to come out of depression and into hope, you know, because it's already in the Bible. You, know, you can say, God so loved the world that he sends only son that anyone who believes in him would not perish. Man, oh, I pray that Daniel would believe in you. God, that you'd speak into his heart that he'd believe in you. Is that all right? And so you take what you read in the Bible and you add it into your prayers. That way you can pray a bit more confidently, like rather than, am I making this up? Uh, if you can just take it out of the Bible and add it. And if you just add in your, just add the names of people into a book and begin to pray. And I'm really challenging people in church. There could be 10 people that God could have you praying for. Imagine if we were all praying for 10 people. That's, that'd be 800 people that we're reaching out to. 800 people that the, 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 the goodness, the mercy of God is reaching to. And God's going to move in their world different to you and different to what you believe. They're not necessarily going to come to church. They God, But we, we don't need them to come to church. We need God to come to them. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're believing for. Amen? Amen?